evidence and answers. Tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be interviewing renowned apologist Dr. Fuzz Rana. Fuzz is the vice president of Reasons to Believe Apologetics Ministry. In this interview, the hot topic is monkey DNA. And are we really that closely related? Now, here's our host, Pat Zukran. Well, one of the most dominant philosophies and ideologies of our time is philosophical Darwinism. Philosophical Darwinism is presented as the only viable alternative that explains the origin and diversity of life. Has Darwin's theory demonstrated, you know, beyond any doubt that really his theory works and that it is the only logical and viable explanation for the origin and diversity of life. Well, many point to transitional forms as proof of Darwin's theory. And one of those, of course, is monkeys to men. And the fact that monkey DNA is about a 98% match to human DNA. And so is that proof that indeed we can have this Darwinian evolutionary process and Does that demonstrate then a link between monkeys and men in this Darwinian evolutionary process? Well, to help us address this issue is Dr. Fazale Rana. Dr. Rana is the vice president of the research and apologetics organization called Reasons to Believe, based there in Southern California. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who is Adam? Creating Life in the Lab, The Cells Design, and Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So, Fuzz, welcome to the 808 State Update. Hey, Pat. Thanks for having me. You know, Fuzz, when we address this whole issue, one of the things we need to talk about is, you know, Darwin's theory. It is presented to many of us who, you know, go through the educational program as the only viable theory that explains the origin and diversity of life. But indeed, does Darwinism indeed prove its case? Well, you know, Pat, I I would be of the opinion that there are are deficiencies with the evolutionary paradigm that even though we hear so often this grand claim that nothing in biology makes sense except in light of the theory of evolution, the fact of the matter is when we look at some of the, the key transitions in the history of life, the evolutionary explanation fails to account for them. So this would include uh, the origin of life, the idea that life would emerge out of a, a primordial soup. Uh, it also in, involves the, the appearance of the very first what are called complex cells, cells that have a nucleus, things like the, the Cambrian explosion where we see the very first appearance of animals on the surface of the earth and along with it, the origin of body plans when it comes to the origin of consciousness and even what I would call the origin of human exceptionalism. These are all five instances where the evolutionary paradigm fails to account for these critical transitions. And in fact, when we look at these transitions, they seem to happen in an explosive manner uh, where these transitions happen virtually instantaneously in a geological setting, which to me is a signature, I think, for some kind of input outside of the system 
what I would view as being uh, divine input. So the fact of the matter is the evolutionary paradigm really can't account for critical transitions in the history of life. And I think alternative theories are justified. You know, Fuzz, uh, one of the things that might surprise people is that Darwin's theory fails to account for the origin of life. Now, how is that? Uh, We were taught, you know, the primordial soup theory and the Urey-Miller experiment demonstrated that it is possible to get life from non-life. Well, for example, if indeed this idea is correct, then we would expect to find in the oldest geological layers on Earth evidence for a prebiotic or a primordial soup. It should leave behind a chemical residue that gives a very clear signature, again, for it for there being a primordial soup. And the fact of the matter is we see no evidence for that whatsoever. But in addition to that, this famous Miller-Urey experiment that most people are probably familiar with from their biology class, in, in which Stanley Miller in the 1950s assembled a glass apparatus with boiling water, and there were gases in the head space like hydrogen and methane and ammonia, and he had this continuous electrical discharge and in a few days generated amino acids, which are the building blocks of life. That's taken as being this compelling reason to think that this idea of a prebiotic suit explains the origin of life. But the fact of the matter is the conditions that Miller used in that experiment in the 1950s are not the conditions we think existed on the early Earth today. Uh, we, we now know that the atmosphere would have been nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and water. And so if we use that particular gas combination, we get nothing in the the Miller-Urey experiment. And so this idea that life comes out of a prebiotic soup is really a scientific myth. There's not evidence that bolsters or buttresses this particular idea. And the fact of the matter is there's the problems with chemical evolution or abiogenesis or the origin of life from an evolutionary perspective, our legion, these are just two of, again, a large number of problems that we could discuss with this particular paradigm. I believe what you're saying is that Uri Miller, one of the major flaws is that they had the wrong atmosphere that they had created in the lab there. They thought that the early Earth's atmosphere was, I believe, hydrogen, methane, ammonia, and water vapor. And indeed, That's true. yeah, that was yes. not the correct atmosphere that the early Earth would have been in. Yes, that's exactly right. And so the Miller-Urey experiment is considered today by most origin of life researchers really irrelevant to the origin of life question. And the problem with the Miller-Urey experiment, that is, that the laboratory conditions don't match the conditions of the early Earth, is actually a problem that plagues all the work that's done in, in origin of life research. Researchers can go in the lab and they can set up these experiments where they can show that not only can you make amino acids, but you can make the building blocks of DNA, the building blocks of cell membranes, things like that. But the problem is all of those experiments require artificial conditions that are created in the laboratory, and those conditions are optimal to produce the chemistry that you would need. As soon as you try to move from the laboratory, and envision what it would be like on the early Earth where the environment would be uncontrolled, those chemical processes are completely nonproductive. That is, ironically, what researchers have actually done is shown that intelligent agency is critical 
for the, that chemistry to even take place that would be in support of the origin of life. And so, ironically, these experiments that are designed to support an evolutionary explanation for the origin of life actually provide evidence that intelligent agency, that a mind is necessary for life to appear on early Earth. Yes. Now, one of the, you know, another fatal flaw of Darwin's theory is what you had mentioned, the fossil record. And one of the things is that we are missing numerous transitional forms. Why is this, you know, a fatal flaw in Darwin's theory? Well, if you think about what Darwin proposes, you would expect that the fossil record would be dominated with evidence for evolutionary transformations. And what we end up seeing more often than not is that new forms appear in the fossil record explosively, and then they remain largely unchanged, and then they disappear from the fossil record. This is a a fairly prominent pattern when we look at the history of life on Earth. And so the the quintessential example of this would be the, the Cambrian explosion. This is an event that happens in life's history that is a defining event because it's the first appearance of complex animal forms as we would be familiar with today. This is an event that happens in the Earth's oceans. It's a marine event. And we see virtually every phyla, at least about 80% of the phyla that we know that have existed throughout Earth's history showing up, again, in a geological instant. It's in a, called biology's Big Bang, and it's a highly enigmatic event that doesn't have any kind of evolutionary explanation. It's not what we would expect to see. And every time we're looking at innovation in the fossil record, it happens with these what so-called radiation events, where, again, the Cambrian explosion is one of them. But we see radiation events for fish. We see radiation events for amphibians, for reptiles, three of them, in fact, for birds and for mammals. And again, this is not what you'd expect from an an evolutionary framework, but to me it's provocative because it suggests, again, that there was some kind of input from outside of the system that I would argue involves the need for intelligent agency to bring about those kind of features in the fossil record. Yes, you know, one of the things that Darwin expected to see was what he calls the tree of life model. But indeed, that's not what the fossil record shows. Uh, explain to us the tree of life model, uh, what he expected, and what indeed the record shows. Yeah, and, and this is one of the classic diagrams that we see in the book Origins of Species, where Darwin is depicting the evolutionary process as this branching tree-like pattern, where you have a, basically a species that then gives rise to two separate species, and that process continues onward and onward until you begin to form groupings of species that would be genera, and then from that, groupings of genera that would be families. And so you're expecting that the history of life would unfold again in this branching tree-like manner. But instead, what we see is, first of all, in the history of life, the origin of phyla first, not the origin of species. So it's almost as if evolution has been turned upside down, if you will. And on top of that, we don't see this branching tree-like pattern. We see what many people will refer to as uh, bushes or lawns in the fossil record where, again, 
and there's innovation, it just seems to happen explosively where there's this, this massive diversification of forms that show up in a geological instant. And again, that's not the pattern that you would expect from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, you, you, what he expected, you know, was that we start from this single, simple cell organism, and from there you would start seeing more and more diverse life developing and developing into all these branches like a tree. But what you're saying is that for maybe the first billion years, there's just simple life forms, and it's more like an umbrella, isn't it? Very little is going on, then suddenly about 500 million years ago, boom, we've got an explosion of the phyla upon the scene called the Cambrian Explosion. Is that correct? That's exactly correct, yes. And that's something that's really very interesting is we see an explosive appearance of the very first life forms as soon as the Earth can support life. And these life forms would be bacteria, archaea-like creatures. And in fact, some of the very first life forms look as if they were capable of photosynthetic activity, which is an incredibly complex metabolic process, and it shows up again, very early in life's history, but then what we see for almost the period of about 2 billion years is basically bacteria. At about 2 billion years ago, we see what's called the eukaryotic Big Bang, where we see the appearance of complex cells for the first time, cells that have a nucleus. This is an explosive event as well. And then we see for a span of time that, again, is on the order of about 1.5 billion years, essentially single-celled organisms. And so out of nowhere, the Cambrian explosion takes place. And one way to picture this is to think about the history of life as if it was a football field. And so if you started on your own goal line, you'd have to drive the football 85 yards down the field before you would even have the appearance of complex animals. And then the duration of the Cambrian explosion is more narrow than a hash mark on a football field. It's an incredibly explosive event. And so when you think about it in those terms, you suddenly begin to appreciate just how dramatic an event the Cambrian explosion was, but again, how the history of life unfolds. And it's at that point that suddenly all the, the body plans that we have ever seen in animals appear in this extremely narrow window of time. It's an incredibly remarkable and dramatic event. Yes, you're listening to our interview here with Dr. Fuzz Rana, the vice president of the organization called Reasons to Believe. We're talking about monkeys to men. Is that proof of the transitional forms in Darwin's theory? But one of the things scientists and many scientists are beginning to discover or beginning to admit is that there are some fatal flaws in the system. And these flaws are huge. They're fatal to the theory of Darwin's theory of evolution. And we're talking here with Dr. Fuzz Rana. He is the vice president of the organization called Reasons to Believe. And we've been talking about some of the fatal flaws in Darwin's theory. Before we go on, Fuzz, tell us about Reasons to Believe. What is that organization? Sure. Uh, Reasons to Believe is a science-based think tank of sorts where we take a look at uh, the latest discoveries in science and look at how those discoveries interact with the Christian faith. And as part of our work, we demonstrate how scientific advance can be used to marshal evidence for God's existence and demonstrate the reliability of Scripture. We've 
been around over 30 years now as an organization. And again, try to communicate to people that even though there's a common perception that science makes belief in God impossible, we show that in fact science points the way to belief in God. Yes, and you have some great publications out, and you've spoken at university campuses, you've been on debates. So, I mean, this is, uh, lack of a better term, a battle-tested material here that has really withstood the challenges of the top scientific scrutiny. Isn't that correct? Yes, I mean, the our arguments are based on the latest insights from science. Uh, there are times where we take viewpoints that might be outside the mainstream of science, but our particular positions are always well evidenced based on discoveries that have been made within the community of scientists. And uh, many times, some of the insights are actually made by scientists who wouldn't necessarily embrace the Christian worldview, but their their discoveries actually support, uh, again, the case for a creator. Yes. Now... As we were talking about, one of the flaws in Darwin's theory is the lack of transitional forms in the fossil record. Instead of the tree of life, you just, you got like this umbrella looking thing where there's little activity going on and then boom, a sudden explosion of life upon the scene. Now, one of the arguments is that we do have transitional forms, one of them being chimpanzees to men. You know, geneticists point to that there's a high degree of similarity Some say as high as 99% between humans and chimpanzees. And so this leads many to conclude that the two species share a common ancestor here. But how close is the DNA, and is that 1% significant? Yeah, well, I mean, as you're pointing out, Pat, it's quite common for for people to adopt this view that there's a 99% genetic similarity between humans and chimpanzees that's almost become an icon in our culture and an icon of evolution. But the fact of the matter is, depending upon how you do the comparison, that similarity can range anywhere from about 90% to 99%. It just depends upon how you, again, do the comparison and what counts as differences or similarities. And in fact, when you align the human genome and the chimpanzee genome, about 25% of the genomes actually don't align. So that number of, let's say, 90% for the sake of discussion is actually 90% of about 75% of the genome. It's not even a full uh, or entire genome comparison. So the fact of the matter is we really don't know what the actual similarity and difference is between humans and chimps. And in a sense, that comparison is relatively meaningless. Uh, For example, depending on how you do the comparison, uh, human beings have a genome that is 80% similar to to rodents, to mice and rats. Uh, But we don't talk about human beings being 80% rat or 80% mice, right? Or, Or if you compare our genome to that of a daffodil, there's a 35% similarity, but we don't think of ourselves as being 35% daffodil. And so this idea of comparing humans and chimps with these raw statistical numbers is really not very meaningful in a biological sense. In fact, when we do begin to see meaningful differences, it has to do 
not so much which, with the genes that are present, but rather how those genes are used. This is referred to as gene expression patterns, and we see rather significant gene expression patterns, in fact, between humans and chimps when it comes to brain activity and brain tissue. And so we see that what really constitutes, I would think, the biggest difference between humans and chimps with respect to our cognitive abilities is where we actually are seeing meaningful genetic differences, but it's not in the percentage, but rather it's how those genes are are being utilized. So from my perspective, the way I, I make sense of this is that the shared genetic similarity, if you will, isn't reflecting common descent, but rather is reflecting common design, where a a creator employed the same set of of building blocks uh, to build human beings and chimps, but did so in ways in which those building blocks were used differently to achieve different types of outcomes. So I see those shared similarities as reflecting a design paradigm, not an evolutionary paradigm. So, you know, when we read these articles and, and they say humans and chimps have 99%, you know, matching DNA, and, but you're saying, no, it's more like 75%. Uh, where does that 99 or percent come from and why, why is it there? It seems so uh, deceptive. There are uh, comparisons between humans and chimps that do yield those kinds of numbers, but you're typically looking at regions where the comparison is done in such a way to give you that high degree of similarity. And you're looking at specifically a single type of genetic difference, which are uh, basically what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, to use the technical term, but it's essentially single point differences in the DNA sequence in regions of the genome that we already know are going to be highly similar uh, because they're coding for functional products, and you expect already a high degree of genetic similarity. But if you start to include other kinds of differences, what are called insertion-deletion differences, for example, or if you start to take into account copy number or or, things like that, you suddenly start seeing that that similarity dramatically drops from 99% to closer to to 90%. Now, this is all presented in the scientific literature, but what doesn't happen is that this information doesn't get translated into the public discourse about these, these topics where this imagery and this icon of a 99% similarity persists. And it's not like it's completely non-scientific. It's just not telling us the full story. Yes, we're talking with Dr. Fuzz Rana, Vice President of Reasons to Believe, talking about monkeys to men How close is the DNA and does it demonstrate, is it solid proof of Darwin's theory? Talking about a very important issue here on one of the dominant ideologies of our time, Darwin's theory of evolution. However, there's some fatal flaws in that theory that should awaken us to perhaps reconsider and consider perhaps another theory of the origin and diversity of life. We're talking here with Dr. Fuzz Rana, he's written several great books. Who was Adam? Life in the Lab, Cells Design, and Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. 
we've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would be interested in having Pat speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call at area code 808-483-0586. Or you may also contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep Pat's broadcast on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh,